0: All right. Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, along with my co-host Don Gibson. Hey there. And today we have a a very interesting episode. We are exploring films that were adapted from plays. Uh, We are in the 1980s, and the plays that were adapted into films, we are looking at two very historical dramas that are based off much of what happened in real life at that time. And so the first one we're looking at is Breaker Morant, which was a film about the Boer Wars. And, and Don's going to start with that. And I am going to follow with Amadeus, was a well-known film in the 80s in uh, the United States and probably around the world, and was extremely successful. So let's open it up with Breaker Morant. And Don, you want to go ahead and give us a little bit of background about that film?
1: Yeah, Breaker Morant, it's, it's an interesting for me, because last week, you know, a couple last episode we did, uh, I talked about Rocky Horror, and I had never seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and then I was actually really surprised, and I liked it, and et cetera. I talked about that. Break around I saw when it came out, and uh, I was a real, whatever, cinephile, really keener teenager in the day, and I just loved seeing, you know, movies in the art houses, and I loved this film when it came out, and so I was, and I haven't seen it since, and I was really curious to see how it held up. And I was uh, very pleasantly, not surprised, but it, it, it was just as good a, a film as I remembered. So as you mentioned, uh, it's a film based on uh, an incident that happened historically that happened in the Boer War, which is the war between the English and the Boers in in South uh,
0: Africa in uh, the turn of the century, turn of the twentieth century. There were actually two. There were actually two wars. There was one in the eighteen eighties, and then one uh, right around the turn of the century. And this one, I think, is from the turn of the century. Yeah,
1: and it's you know we don't have to get into all the uh, the details of the war, but uh, there were a lot of Australians
0: um, in this
1: in in fighting on behalf of, of course, the British Empire. And this is a story of. Uh, three Australians that were court-martialed for executing uh, prisoners and other people against the rules of uh, war. it's based on a book of one of the people that uh, is is court-martialed. His name is George Witten, and the book's called Scapegoats of an Empire. That was turned into a play, did very uh, well, and then it turned into a film. Uh, it's directed by a guy named Bruce Beresford, and he's Australian. This is an Australian film. But right after he made this film, he actually talks about this film. He says everyone loves this film, but no one's really seen it. It's sort of his, his joke because it wasn't that known. It was played in art houses, uh, but everyone knows about this film now because that's how he got to Hollywood. And after that... Uh, he made films probably best known for Driving Miss Daisy, which won the uh, Oscar uh, several years later. He also made a film called Tender Mercies with uh, Robert Duvall and Crimes of the Heart, which was this beautiful play with many well-known actors. Uh, Bruce Beresford was part of this sort of Australian cinema renaissance that happened in the mid 70s up into the early 80s. So Peter Weir also came out at that time. He made a film called Picnic and Hanging Rock and later, later Gallipoli, Year of Living Dangerously. And then he came to Hollywood, and he made uh, films. He's probably best known for The Truman Show. And there's also Julian Armstrong's My Brilliant Career, which got a lot of accolades. And then she made uh, Little Women, and she 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 also came to Hollywood. And then uh, George Miller also came out of Australia at the time. He kind of stayed there really because he's the guy that did the Mad Max franchise. But this is a time when when uh, Australia just sort of came into, into notice with the world. From my perspective, um, I was just like, oh, let's see Australian films. And because of this film, it's uh, so beautifully directed. In a way, it's kind of a foresh- forerunner of those beautiful golden hue films that happened a lot from the Brits as well. You know, those uh, films like the Ivory Merchant films, Howard's Hand and Room with a View. It has the same look. It's very golden. It's beautiful storytelling. It's uh, very much based on, you know, locations and sets. And, you know, this about the. it's always about the Brits. I mean, this is about the British Empire in South Africa. It's not complimentary towards the Brits and how they ran things and how they, you know, treated the, the colonials, uh, such as, uh, you know, the Australians in in our film. What did you think of it, Ben? I hadn't seen the film. I hadn't even heard of it
0: until you shared with me that that was your pick for the uh episode. And so I went into this not knowing anything about it, except that you saying that it was a historical, you know, war film, which as a history teacher, you know, that interested me a lot. And so I went into this film, um, open-minded about it. And I was really, I enjoyed the film a lot. I thought it was well done. It was tight. I I think the script was very efficient in getting across a lot of the ideas and it wasn't a long dialogue driven scenes. It was much more you know, the stress of the situation and because there's a lot of the scenes are, are shot in the battle times or area where the war is fought or in the court or in the cells. And so there's a lot of stress in, involved in a lot of the scenes between the actors. And so you can kind of get a sense, the energy in the dialogue that they speak very abruptly. Oftentimes, there's a lot of tension and emotion. I was impressed with how that energy kind of went through the film in the sense that you Know we weren't getting drowned in these long monologues of which sometimes these things happen with these types of historical drama films, so I was impressed with that. I uh, liked the actors, I thought they were very good. I think the, the actor who is accused of, of killing the priest I can't remember his name Brian Brian Brown. Brian Brown, he was in a FX, was that was that a franchise movie that he was yeah, two parts? Yeah,
1: yeah, and he, he was also in a cocktail
0: with uh, yeah, a cocktail with the. Uh, with Tom Cruise, uh, he was the only guy that was familiar to me, and I it was driving me crazy. But I did remember him, and I'm assuming that this was part of the platform that he started to become a little bit more famous. I thought he was very strong in this role. I thought all of the the characters that were on trial were very good. The actors playing them were very good. I also thought the man who played the lawyer, kind of like their military counsel to defend them, I thought he was good, and the judicial panel of officers at the court court martial i thought they also played those roles very well i mean it it was just a well done movie i mean there wasn't i didn't feel like there was a lot of weakness i thought the timing was well created i thought the court scenes were much more efficient and this kind of military court drama really influenced some other movies too you know when i think of uh, a few good men with tom cruise and uh, jack nicholson and that court trial kind of vibe yeah i could see that this film probably influenced that film. I think, was it Rob Reiner who directed A Few Good Men? I think so. It was, yes. I think he might've been influenced a little bit from this film because they were probably about 10 years apart, I would say. not, not, Maybe a dozen years apart. But overall, a really good film. I, I enjoyed it. The thing that I find interesting about these type of films, when they're not like big US studio films, is that they don't have some of the conventions that they have to follow that you see in in studio films. So for instance, I don't think in a studio film now they would have gone all the way through the ending of this film. They would have kind of they would have stopped it at some point and let you kind of it's implied that this other stuff happened at the end. But this film just took it all the way to the very end point of that story for these three men and just, you know, really put it in your face. And I don't I'm not so sure we would have seen something like that from a traditional US studio pick.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I know you're withholding the ending, but I don't think it's a lot of people. I mean, the, sh- the film is beautifully shot, but the, the final sequence is absolutely beautiful. That's executions and the, it's fascinating how it's done and in the way it's filmed, filmed at dawn and it's out on the, the Transvaal, which is this totally empty, bleak landscape, which I think harkens back to a lot of Australians to, you know, kind of the outback or just complete emptiness and the, the dawn and they're, they're sitting in chairs and, Lots of people talked about the, the final sequence and how uh, emotional it is because, you know, we we're, we feel incredibly uh, self-righteous or we feel terribly, we, we think wrongs have been done to these people and and we see the machinery of the British uh, Empire. And the story basically is, they say, and they say this, this aspect's been a little bit fictionalized, the Brits saw through basically, you know, finding these guys guilty, three Australians, because if they didn't, because there was a a Boer priest that was killed and that he, and they had some sort of connections to the German government. And if they didn't do something about it, there was a potential the Germans were actually gonna come into the war. And so apparently Lord Kitchener, who was in charge of all this said, you know, basically these guys are our scapegoats and then it's good for everybody um, and that's and that's the feeling of the whole film and that that message is is really well delivered um, it's interesting cuz Bruce Beresford claims that he didn't really think that's what the story was about the director he thought it was a lot more about how people in war behave you know in their when they're normally you know very civilized so like the guy the main guy who's Breaker Moran, his last name's Moran, and his first name, his nickname is Breaker because he's known for breaking horses. It's an actor that I don't really know if I've seen him in other things, but his name's Edward, uh, Edward Woodward. And you also mentioned the other guy, the, the, the lawyer, his name is Jack Thompson. He's just marvelous, and he's Australian, but he's got a really strong connection to England, and he's always reciting poetry, and it's he's very civilized Um, But he believes very much in they did the right thing. And he's pretty angry at the government, the British government, for basically telling them all to come to war, to fight for the empire, and then using them uh, as scapegoats or sacrificing them, essentially. And uh, this theme actually... Was done, I don't know if it was a year before, or a year after, in Gallipoli uh, by Peter Weir. Uh, and it's the same thing, uh, colonials, you know, in you know, in a World War II, uh, one battle, and then basically them being sacrificed. And this was sort of a theme, Australia kind of defining, I, I guess, its national character. And of course, what about 10 years later, there's a strong, you know, movement to get out of the British Empire. And so this film, it definitely reflects the feeling in Australia about. You know, recognizing yourselves and fine. We have a history with England, but honestly, they didn't do us any great honor. And in the film, we see all these images of the British Empire, you know, there's bagpipes playing and there's all this ceremony. But it's funny because it's just like three or four people, you know, playing the trumpet or something. And then the, the shot pulls back and it's just like this complete empty landscape and of course it, and one thing it's the, the boars are there and uh black population's there and the black population has really nothing to do with the story they're just sort of watching these things happen so it's an interesting sort of moment and portrayal of what the British Empire was like um at that time.
0: Yeah I thought that some of the workings of the film w- were very good and there was some imagery and, and music like for instance Whenever the, there was a transition where they often had the town band playing in the like the gazebo of the town nearby and people were watching the, the musicians in the band, there would also there'd be some kind of event that happened. Like for instance, one of the men, a collaborating boar who happened to be like a scout or something, he testified against the, the officers, even though he was pretty much complicit with everything that was happening. And and eventually he gets assassinated in that little town and nobody cares. You know, they just kind of walk by his body. It's just kind of whispered, well, you know, the Boers don't take lightly to, you know, betraying them. And the, and the Boers were, you know, really, it was interesting because the Boers never talk in this film. There's no... There's really no, they're just like these barbarians in the hill kind of vibe. They're all bearded and dirty. And, you know, they're just kind of portrayed as the the orcs almost of of the movie, you know. And it's kind of interesting because that's probably the British lens of how they were portrayed during this war. You mentioned a little bit about how the Kitchener and the colonial military headquarters staff looked at this. Because they were in the process of actually having some peace talks with the Boers to kind of end this. Situation and part of kind of giving the, an olive branch to the Boers in this sense was to show the accountability for the treatment of of the Boers and these execution policies and saying it wasn't us; these were just renegade Australian soldiers, and and that was part of what this was. This trial was to orchestrate in regards to the connection to the preparations for peace talks, and you know it's even kind of implied in in the dialogue that, you know, these three Australians are just absolutely not nearly as important as the potential for ending this war. And so they, they're they worthy of the sacrifice and, you know, too bad for them, but that's just the way things are. And, you know, I think that idea, coupled with a lot of the feelings of what men must go through when they know that their death is imminent, it's out of their control, and the process that leads to their death very much played out in very specific detail within this film is something that really is captured well. The sense of this is all leading to one conclusion, then there's really nothing we can do about it, even though we'll try our hardest, but we we just have to accept that, you know, probably we're going to be executed. Knowing that and how they kind of mentally have to fight their demons and close off their lives is really portrayed very well also in this film.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's one of the I think the portrayal of what, as you say, people dealing with the, the their, you know, your death and knowing it's going to happen is beautifully done. And especially the interplay between the character that Brian Brown plays, the guy that eventually came to Hollywood, and then the Breaker Morant character. Breaker Morant is this poetic, very gentlemanly civilized kind of guy that is, you know, can recite tennis and you name it. And Brian Brown is the hard core drinking fellow that has, is a gal in every town and Breaker recites a beautiful poem. Then Brian Brown recites a pretty, you know, uh, coarse limerick, but they're dynamic. between them, they're totally opposite ends of the spectrum of, quote, being civilized, but they're very you know, noble and proud and they really deal with things in a very similar way, even though they're very uh, different personalities. But I think, I liked what you said about how the Boers are portrayed, you know, a bunch of orcs that are sitting in the hills I think the irony of this film is that we start to wonder, wait a minute, who are the orcs or whatever? Who are the who are the really awful people in this? And the question we come to our mind is maybe it's the Brits who are playing all these positions to maintain their empire and sacrificing people and sacrificing all their you know, this, the Breaker Morant character understands uh, British culture very well. And he also understands, he says, this is what this is one of his great lines is, this is what happens when you do empire building. It's a very thoughtful thing that really makes you think, even if you don't know the Boer War and the history, that's not really that important. It's just sort of a really interesting moment that these, these kinds of things are still played out uh, today all the time.
0: I agree. Are there any other points you'd like to bring up about the film?
1: Now, the last thing I didn't mention, you talked about being sort of a, a good forerunner for the genre of courtroom dramas, like, uh, you're a good man, you can't handle the truth. I totally agree. And the thing that it does so well is it intercuts between the trial and then the things that happened, which is the key, like, when, when you think about once again, this is an adaptation you think, okay, most of this action is going to be in a courtroom on a stage. But in a film, you actually can go and show the events in, in some way. And they they go back and forth to what happened or what people say happened. We see it. And then we go to the courtroom and we go also to their cells where they're waiting for their judgments. And those cuts between... You know, what happened in the, in the courtroom are very well, it moves the stories very well forward, just like a few good men does. You cut back and forth the trial, then you, you go to something. And that's the key to these kinds of films. And I think Break of Morant establishes a really good uh, you know blueprint.
0: All right. Well, if you haven't seen uh, Break of Morant, we definitely are both strongly recommending it. It, w- it was a very well done film and uh, we both enjoyed it a lot. So let's move on. And next, we're going to look at Amadeus, a film directed by uh, Milos Forman, released in 1984. It was adapted from a play by Peter Schaefer, also of the same name, um, Amadeus. It was an extr- critically successful and financially successful film. Uh, it was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. It won eight of those academy awards out of 11 including the big 3 best picture best director best actor the cast extremely good f murray abraham uh who plays Sol- soleri salieri and uh tom tom holse plays uh amadeus the casting for for that role which was obviously a well sought after role mark hamill who had played luke skywalker and also played Amadeus on stage at the la- the end of the run was uh, trying to get that role, but Milosch would would see him and just kept thinking of Star Wars and just thought I can't have him in this role. You know, so the curse of Star Wars was already starting to impact uh, Mark Hamill. And then Kenneth Brognag, whatever his name, Brogna, however- yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, he also very much thought that he basically had the role. But then Milos decided to go with an American cast for all the main characters, and so he wanted to be consistent in the language, and uh, that kind of knocked Kenneth Brognar out of the uh, running. But Ben, game. you got you got it. don't forget Tim Curry. He he auditioned for the role.
1: You know Tim Curry from your favorite film Rocky Horror. Yeah,
0: well Tim, well all the British guys were knocked out when he went with the American uh, Tim Curry. Uh, even Mick Jagger, he he auditioned for this, and so he would not have been know, good. And you know, at the time, Mozart was considered kind of the Mick Jagger of, of music at that back in the day. So but that. in the end, Tom Holst got the role and I thought he did a very good job. I always remember him. I think is was it Otter? Was he Otter in? He's uh, Otter in,
1: in Animal in house, house. Yeah. Which,
0: uh, which you know, I could see some of the energy when they're drunk, and you know, you could see a little bit of that energy in the in the film. But the film is basically about uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, a very kind of fantasy kind of way. It's not. It's very loosely related, based off his his story. A lot of you know, fictionalization is added because it just makes it t- for a, a much better story and film we see him as a young child and he meets Marie Antoinette and everybody's like oh she's that's not gonna work out well for her you know and then he moves into all the courts his father is kind of like basically making money off of his son you know all throughout the film you you know that he's completely devoted to his father but his father look like he's more of a user than anything it, it you get that sense that you know he was uh, benefiting from Mozart's fame but not necessarily giving a lot of Back to Mozart. Very stern. Stern, but also not particularly, uh, you know, he was like the the lion who just kind of sits around and waits to be fed, you know, the head of the family kind of thing. The film really portrays uh, Mozart as like this just out of control, spoiled, partying brat who just knows that because of his talent, he he gets a lot of get out of jail free cards. He gets a lot of passes for his behavior. Uh, You know, so we see this constantly, this chaotic universe that he creates in whatever situation he's in he becomes this focal point of chaos and it doesn't matter if he's in the court or if he's, you know, out on the streets or with, with women or in the entertainment. No, well, actually, the only time you see him really focused is when he's performing, then it's a different, he's a much more of a different person when he's performing at an opera house, you know, conducting his opera or his symphony or whatever it happens to be. Then it's a very different You you see the focus when he's writing his music in his apartment, he's just working for hours and just, pushing himself and his health is is in question and and eventually that's what kills him because he he doesn't live very long he only lives to 35 much of that in the film is portrayed as a manipulation of his relationship with uh the character salieri who's played by f murray abraham and by the way f murray i mean he wins the oscar for this for best actor uh, against Holtz, actually, Holtz is one of the other nominees, and absolutely F. Murray Abraham was just fantastic. The only thing I was bothered by with F. Murray Abraham's role, and it's hard to say why this choice was made, but they spent four hours a day putting this old man makeup on him for when he's in the and you know telling his story to the priest at the end of his life. But his voice is not that; he doesn't have an old man voice. It's it's a young. He's playing, you know, like a, a middle-aged to young person's voice. And it, it bothered me so much like he didn't have that old creaky voice that you would expect with the amount of makeup they put on him. And that was a choice. And I'm not sure why, but it was for me, that was a little bit of a distraction.
1: Well, yeah, in terms of the uh, the voices, uh, they also uh, Milos Foreman. Um, you know, as you said, all the actors are American. and He told them not to, you know, change their accents. It's just speak your your accent. So it, it seemed that he was much more interested in the performance, and he wasn't so worried about the... Authenticity. The, the authenticity of the voice, yeah. Because, like, Tom Hulse talks like an American, and it's like yeah. Mozart. Doesn't there even try...
0: Few, to- there are a few characters that have kind of a Germany accent, yeah. but the minor character. And, and another interesting thing is there's huge amounts of music in this. I mean... Tom Holtz had to had no significant musical background. He had a little bit of a musical background, but he 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 was nothing at the level that he would have ne- needed to be to portray an authentic musician. So he practiced piano for six weeks, four to five hours a day to learn keyboarding and piano playing and and all of Mozart's work that would be portrayed. And even when he, he's uh, you know at a drunken party and he's playing on the keyboards and they turn him upside down, that's all him. He's doing all that. It's uh, so he he really did. Uh, invest in the expertise to reflect in the film that he was that person playing the pianos and the various scenes. And another interesting thing is they showed this to some musical professors, this film, and they analyzed all of the keys that were being played during every scene. So all the, the keyboarding that was done on the piano, then connected it to the sound. And they said, every there was never once an incorrect key played to represent the sound that you heard. Every single key was correct. To the sound that was played throughout the movie, which is a phenomenon, because I mean, huge amounts of this movie is is people playing pianos of some sort or some sort of piano-like instrument and like harpsichord, harpsichords, and some other film. Yeah. Uh, they they said there were some other things that is to me is astounding because there's this. I mean, the direct we watched the director's cut. It's three hours, and it does go. I mean, it doesn't feel like three hours until about maybe two hours and 30 minutes into it. It gets a little long at, at one point, but it, I mean, for most part, it's just such a good movie and a good story and the characters are so strong and the scenes and everything, it's just astoundingly good. You don't feel it. There was definitely some of the music pieces, maybe they could have you know, cut a little bit of that out. Yeah. No. I'm just, for me personally, the director's cut had 40 extra minutes, I think, of, of scenes in it that in yeah. the theatrical cut, they had, he was told to cut out everything that was basically not connected to the plot. So they basically leaned that movie down to make it, uh, you know, available as a, a normal running film, but it would, it would be more commercially successful in with the theatrical version. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, for me, uh, the film is, it's the music. The music is so you know, beautifully portrayed. You know, there's these scenes, you know, the magic flute and Marriage of Figaro, and there's these beautiful scenes they show from them. And they they stage them in opera houses and in places that actually Mozart played as well. Most of the thing was shot in, in Prague. So they actually stage them in, in opera houses. And they also like, there's this opera they did called The Abduction from the Seraglio, which I've never seen and it's never played, but there's this incredible climax that they show. I just want to see it because I want to see that again. Uh, I want to see it live because it's so wonderful. The staging and and the performance, the music, I recommend highly watching this. Get a big screen and make it really loud because the music is just absolutely gorgeous. I think if my mother was, you know, maybe I'm influenced my mother, loved the opera and and, and Mozart. And so I often think about her when I see it. But I mean, you know, just me personally, I think uh, the music is remarkable. And I also agree the performances. Tom Hulse, you know, as he's got this crazy laugh that he does. That just—he sounds like a hyena, and he's just nuts. And you're thinking, this genius Mozart, and he, and everyone, and that's the, that's their sort of like a, a flashpoint for Salieri. Every time he hears a laugh, he just he has some sort of meltdown, nervous reaction. And then the other guy that we haven't mentioned is the. Man that played the Emperor Joseph. His name is Jeffrey Jones. I've never really seen him in anything else. Oh, yeah, you have. You have seen him in, in something.
0: What else is he in the end? He was the principal in Ferris Bueller's day. Oh, yeah, he's the principal in Ferris Bueller, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So, so he was, you know, it's very yeah. interesting because that's that, that yeah. this film came out before Ferris Bueller's day. Off, yeah. But, you know, it's and he, he, he's so well known for that character. Yeah. Uh, that's true.
1: You're right. What am I thinking? Of course yeah. he is. Yeah. But I mean, in
0: this, he's like
1: the emperor. He's the emperor. And he says the craziest stuff. He's got this line when he doesn't know what to say and something happens. Uh, Like there's a scene where Mozart's mother, you know, faints and he just looks at her and he says, well, there it is. And then he walks away. And it's it's really this sort of really light touch, subtle comic uh, elements that. Every time I see the guy, I just smile because he's he's per, per, portrayed as a bit of a buffoon, but a, kind of a very you know likable buffoon. And, he, you know, he says to Mozart after, I think it's the abduction of Sorelius, he says, no, nah, I, I didn't really like it. And, and he said, what's wrong? And then his, his line is apparently this is historically accurate. He said, there's too many notes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <The> greatest line. <laughs> yeah. And no, I thought he was very good. You know, he had some mannerisms that he added to this that. And I don't know if it was if wonderful. A direction, but there was this whenever he had to make a decision. And he was listening to all the advisors in the room he made he he kind of went hmm or like yeah. uh-huh or some you know there was like this little catchphrase that he had where he was you know maybe he wasn't happy with what the last person said and that helped the other group that was trying to but you could never tell but there was always this like
1: mm-hmm, mm hmm, okay yeah his yeah. mannerisms and the, yeah. as you said, the little subtle noises. he Yeah, made, he was
0: very good in, in kind of capturing the quirkiness. And, you know, the Habsburgs were just like inbred like crazy. I mean, they were just totally a weak line of people just because of the inbreeding that was constantly happening within their families. And And I guess that uh, that idea was portrayed really well. And so you kind of get this, like, you know, he likes music. He really doesn't want to make any serious decisions like, oh, well, that's it then let's, let's do the opera in German, you know? And uh, speaking of that, the opera wasn't in German. It was in English. All the German speaking operas were done in English, but all the Italian operas were still in Italian. In this film, there was this, you know, kind of battle between the Italian advisors in the emperor's cabinet of advisors, and then the, the German advisors, and Valerii, he was actually Italian, but he was, you know, he sixty years of his life he was a, in the German courts, and so he was an Italian by birth. His style was actually more German in uh, the reality of his influences. Gluck was one of his mentors, and and so. Uh, that wasn't really portrayed in the movie. He was considered more on the Italian side. But the reality of it is that he was much more of a German-style composer. And so, you know, you really got that sense of uh, conflict between the two houses of music that were trying to influence this emperor's taste. And probably that because the emperor's taste was basically kind of the leading direction for what the population liked or didn't like within the, the elite of the empire. Yeah.
1: And it's interesting, too, they show how opera, like, you know, here we are talking about a film like opera and most people probably think, you know, having, if they don't know it, they think that doesn't sound like a very good movie. You know, and there is quite a bit of music, but it's 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 portrayed absolutely beautifully. And 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 one thing, it was all natural light and there's this beautiful way, you know, when you're in the opera house, it's just golden light. But they also show that how Mozart wrote for the court, but he also wrote popular operas. And he's really well known for this one, The Magic Flute, which is full of lots of really popular songs as you say, he was kind of like a Mick Jagger, Rolling Stone kind of character at the time. And he, this magic flute is full of really uh, fun songs. And he basically just wrote it for the, a popular opera with, for people to really just sing along with. And then you hear these songs and anyone that thinks they don't know opera, you know, listen to some Mozart and you know it because it's, it's through popular music. People have played with what he's developed and they've obviously, you know, advanced it with different instruments now. But the way he develops... You know, sounds. Uh, it's just, it's just absolutely remarkable. And and this this film, I think the three hour version is much better than the original version because it, you really get involved and, and brought into the the era. I I recommend the director's
0: cut. Uh, no, I think the director's cut was very good. And you brought up the the opera houses they filmed in. Don Giovanni, which was, uh, you know, after his father's death was uh, an opera that he made, was actually filmed in the opera house where it was first introduced. So that, that that's amazing. I mean, nothing had really, that opera house had basically stayed the same for 300 years or whatever amount of time. Uh, yeah. and so that kind of history, Prague is a living ancient city. You know, it was never bombed during World War II. And so all of it's old, everything that's ever filmed in a period piece in Europe during those times is always filmed in Prague because of Prague's yeah. elegance and historical, being in, historically intact for the most part. Uh, some other things, you know, you talked a little bit about Holz as Amadeus had this, you know, historical laugh. And that was something that he created based off an instruction from Milos Forman. And it's not something that he felt he could ever replicate again. In fact, when they had to do the, the uh, post-production re-recording of things that had been missed or not captured, he couldn't get that laugh quite right. He had to, you know, drink a little bit to just kind of try and get that down again because it was something that he never felt he could replicate again. And you know, some of the crazy mood swings that you see Paul's take in regards to choices of playing their character, he said that was inspired a lot by John McEnroe. By yeah. watching John McEnroe his uh, temper you know, tantrums. in his temper tantrums and everything yeah. on, on court was part of what he took to to kind of create a little bit of that character, which I thought was fascinating. Because then as I thought about it, I was like, oh, yeah, I could, I could see a little McEnroe there, you know. Well, he also we also talked about being shot
1: in Prague. And it's interesting, it wasn't shot in Vienna, which is where all this stuff happened. Milos Forman is, is Czech. And so, you know, he had a lot of power at the time. He he's, he shot, he won the Oscar for One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Four or five years earlier or maybe more than that and then later he did the people versus larry flint so he he had a pretty good uh, history and so he had power to go back to prague but at the time uh, czechoslovakia which is what it was then um it was under communist rule and it was uh, that people talk about how stressful it was uh, shooting there but i just think it's so fascinating that Foreman went back to shoot in a place that, obviously, you know, it was. He was under scrutiny, and, and I'm sure he was a little bit concerned that something might happen to him. And there's some stories about police following him and stuff. And uh, but just the choice of locations is just what, what a marvelous opportunity for Foreman to really express, you know, a passion for his for this uh, remarkable piece of work.
0: No, there's some very interesting stories. There's one story where they were shooting a scene in the opera on the 4th of July. And at one point, the uh, crew, at the beginning of a shot, they released a giant American flag. All of the crew and, and extras in the, in the stage seats stood up and sang the Star-Spangled Banner. And there was about 30 people in the audience who were not sitting standing for this and that they were all identified as the secret police who were observing the the, uh, yeah. the people in the cast and kind of just keeping an eye on everybody. And and even Milos Forman, was, he was being followed constantly because of his defection to the U.S. is kind of how they looked at, it. he was a yeah. traitor. Well, he was a dissident, he left. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and they even, like part of his contract, his best friend was his driver from Czechoslovakia. And they did that intentionally because they knew that they're showing him that if anything happened, that they didn't like they would punish this man's family and so that was they intentionally used that as a control mechanism and i don't think milos was necessarily a political person at this point he was trying to make this film but he was there for you know it was a year that he was there for this and so he, you know they wanted to make sure that they had these control points yeah
1: yeah and my last thing that I, I found out was that that was really interesting when the, and this film won a lot of awards i forget but it won best picture best actor it, uh and must have had best adapted score i all the things. Yeah, eight,
0: eight out of eleven. I think the only thing yeah. they'd win was cinematography. Yeah. And some other so sound. when it when it was awarded, uh,
1: Sir Laurence Olivier announced the winners. Okay. He just opened the envelope and said the winner is a- a- Amadeus and then he read any of the nominees. So he didn't follow protocol. And so when the uh, producer uh, came up, uh, Saul Zentz, uh, he worked it into a speech. He said I want to thank all my other uh, colleagues, uh, all of my other people that were working on their films, and then he named all the nominated films. One of them was the Killing Fields that we did a while ago. Also, and
0: also the, uh, the the Indian Passage, to India
1: Passage, to India. You're right. So, wow, this is like, well, what else was there? And so, yeah, he, so he did the nominees, and it was just one of these moments. And they think that he was early onset dementia or something. Yeah, just,
0: they, that's what they were saying. All the rules, some illness.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, another interesting thing is that uh, this is only one of four pictures. That had won the Best Picture Oscar and the Best Tony Play. Don, can you name those other three films? Those Rocky other Horror films? has got to be in there for sure. Oh, sorry, Don, that that was not <laughs> one of them. But uh, thinking about great plays that were adapted, you know, because this has been a, a an ongoing theme for us, and you are a bit of a cinema expert. I am. Really I, did,
1: I didn't look that one up. To tell me what they are. Well, just... My Fair
0: Lady. My Fair Lady, sound the sound music. music. Oh, okay, I got and it a man of for all seasons. Man, for all seasons, that's probably fun. This film definitely critically, just stunningly well received. And director's cut definitely is a stronger version of this. As Don said, he has a very strong kind of motherly uh, connection to this, in in regards to music and opera, and so that it awesome. yeah. kind of got to his heart a little bit. And if you're that type of person, then, you know, but if, if you're more like me, who's like uh, opera, you know, I got through the music and in, in the songs, but it's definitely the storyline is just so strong and it captures you with the characters and the interplay and the dialogue and the script. It's just the music is definitely well done and choreographed and you and you only get little snippets of these things. And it definitely does add to the flavor of the magnificence of what Mozart created but it is something for me that it could have, you know, could have shaved off a little bit of that. And I would have appreciated it just as much. Great film. I'm sorry, Don. Could you say that again? It's F and Mozart. I mean, you don't edit Mozart. It's Mozart. Well, I mean, a lot of Mozart was edited to get this. Uh, That's true. You
1: know, yeah. So you, uh, yeah. Well, you do, Don. I guess you do. That is true.
0: Anyway, so uh, I think we've really picked some great films this uh, this episode that we both really enjoyed and, and were just well, well received and historically still significant today in, in what they portray and their influences on society. In fact, there was a whole resurgence of uh, Salieri's music just from this film. He he was a dead composer; nobody was listening to him. But this film actually reignited an interest in his catalog of music, and he and people have now, you know, from the impact of this film in the last forty years, his music is being listened to again. Salieri is Salieri, and Mozart is Mozart. Yes. Excellent way to conclude this one. So I want to thank you guys all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this and uh, we'll let you know what our next choices are. And thanks for coming to Around the Corner.